When I fall, I got parachutes. 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 What you gonna say? What you gonna do? What you gonna gonna Is what they say true? And all these questions, I make sure I am still on top. And all these questions, I make sure this train is hard to stop. No matter what I say or do, no matter the song or two, it's me you cannot drop. I'm in a parachute up in the sky. I- I'm in a parachute. I'm soaring down. Parachute. I'm soaring down. When I fall, I got parachute. Politicize every song I sing. Tell you about a reality. You're living in a virtual reality. You're sucking on the tit that feeds you lies. Getting screwed by a system of ties to our demise. We are blamed. Why blame us? That's insane. All we know is pain. Control us for 300 years. Saw epitome of fears in a machine that broke us. Made us get out of focus. Preacher told us stop that hocus pocus. Look what we had. Our culture was just a fad. What they didn't still do is sad. It makes me mad. Why be racist? It's made us faceless. Made us into your slaves. Land slaves for your wage. In this first world country, you're the entire Repeat and recycle. Put more money in guns. We make war to be free. We make war to be free. Are we really? Giving him my all. Giving him my all. Gotta stand tall because I'm giving him my all. Good when morning. Fall, Welcome to Wake the F Up on 101.5 UMFM. We air on Thursdays, 11 to 11.30. My name is Christina. I use pronouns she, her. And my co-host, Kran, is not here today. I'm sure he's somewhere busy with the feminist agenda. I'm sure he's got a whole pile of bras to burn right now. So we have a very special guest here today. If you would like to introduce yourself. I am Elizabeth McMechan. I use she, her pronouns. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining me here today. So, Elizabeth, you are one of my favorite people to rant with about different types of feminism and the history of different types of feminisms, why they might not be so great, and why we should take more deliberate action with a particular type of feminism that we both know and love that outlines, I guess, a more strategic way of how to fix things. Yeah. So revolution yeah and that's proletarian feminism right yeah no i'm i'm eager to talk about it it's not a very well-known type of feminism just because it it emanates sort of out of a very particular form of socialist ideology which is that of marxism leninism maoism and so because it's not frequently talked about it's something that umsan rsm the university of manitoba student action network has really been trying to have educational events on and like focus on in our theory So I'm eager to talk about it. Yeah, awesome. And I think it's so important. And I think as soon as people hear a lot of the big words that you just said, they get intimidated. (laughs) And to be honest, I know that I did for a while. And that's because a lot of my understanding of feminism definitely came from how I learned about feminism in academics, which, you know, it gives us the history of a lot of the feminisms of the 20th century. So the first wave, second wave, third wave. And then now, of course, we're in the fourth wave. It it kind of describes a few different types and then it took us to intersectional feminism with which of course is fantastic absolutely with intersectional feminism the thing that i really find with it it really was the first one to accurately describe the state of things so the thing that it really lacks is strategy yes no exactly and like kimberly crenshaw's you know, naming of the term intersectionality was so huge because it was this, it was the academic acknowledgement that these forms of oppression, capitalism, white supremacy, patriarchy, were actually intertwined in such a way that it 
we had to come up with a, a more strategic solution. Something had to be done that would attack all of these things at once, right? It's not something that you can fight capitalism on its own and you're going to defeat the issue of the white supremacist capitalist heteropatriarchy, right? I mean, you have to attack everything at once and you have to come at it from this intersectional perspective. And you're absolutely right. Like Kimberly Crenshaw coined this term in academia and that's fantastic, but then you need a strategy for how to take it down. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's one thing to name it, it'll be another to actually make efforts to destroy it. Yeah. Yeah, and through an intersectional perspective will be key. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of people don't know about the different types of feminism of the 20th century that I speak of. I know you and I know it because, well, uh, it was definitely my first encounter with these different types when we had feminist thought together, what, two years ago now? Yeah, yeah, a Something ago. like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was during the strike, so it was 2016. Yeah, 2016. Um, yeah. So that was definitely my first acquaintance with those. And, and recently, we did some readings on, what was the name of the author? Um, Anuranda Gandhi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where, uh, where Anuranda was breaking down the, I guess, pros and cons. Yeah, the philosophical trends in the feminist movement, right? Yeah, breaking it down, critiquing, like a a huge proponent of like Marxist, Leninist, Maoist ideology is to critique, is to to criticize and then to understand those criticisms. So with proletarian feminism moving forward, you can learn from the mistakes made in the past and improve upon those so you can continually grow Mm -hmm. as as feminists and as uh, socialists. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I can't even begin to describe how excited that makes me be. <laughs> but uh, before, well, without going too much on that tangent, I guess we can talk about the first one that we read about, which yeah. was, was that, was liberal feminism the first one we talked about? Liberal feminism was the first one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like, uh, that's suffragettes, you know, the mm-hmm. idea of liberal feminism coalesces with the idea of liberalism as sort of like a a more political or like social ideology. So really focusing on the individual rights, freedoms, that sort of thing, your liberties. Mm-hmm. Um, liberal feminists, you know, had a lot of a lot of flaws, you know, and did important totally. did important work for sure, but had a lot of flaws and really lacked that sort of intersectional analysis that's so key in actually making work that is inclusive and making gains that are inclusive in feminist organizing. Like uh yeah. Yeah, because yeah, liberal feminists like they sort of operate on this idea that everyone is made equal through their intellectualism. Yes. Yeah. So they assume that everyone is intellectual mm-hmm. and therefore everyone has equal rights to opportunity. Absolutely. That's the underlying assumption and that's really an assumption coming from a place of privilege from these white feminists. Absolutely, right? And that's what you see. You know, you look at the suffragettes and it's mostly, you know, bourgeois, petty bourgeois women who were white, you know, settlers often. You know, it's it's frustrating because you want to be excited about this work that kickstarted a, a very huge movement, but at the same time, you have to be willing to criticize that work and understand that it was flawed, right? I mean, mm. we always, you know, count like 1918 was the year that women got the that. vote, right? Well, women exactly, got the vote. I was going to be like 1918. They were like, yeah. that's when women got the vote, but, but then... Indigenous women didn't get the vote until like the 60s, you know? 50s or 60s, 50s or yeah. 60s, yeah. It, oh, you read my mind. <laughs> yeah, regardless, whatever time it was, it was too late. You know, like this should have been, if the liberal feminists had cared about the intersectionality of your class position, your race, your gender identity, your sexuality, then these things would have been accounted for in the original fight, but they weren't. And so that points to a huge critique of liberal feminism in general, and that it is very individualistic and reflects a lot of capitalist ideology. Mm -hmm. You know, liberalism, neoliberalism are capitalist ideologies. And, you know, not congruent with what 
with what feminism, I believe, yeah. should reflect. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I want to come back to that point of how, so ideologically, that's how liberalism was lacking. But I want to come back to how liberalism is lacking in sort of strategic movements. Before we do that, radical feminism. Yeah. So that's another really big one. And a lot of lay people think that radical feminism is every feminism. It's yeah. like, this is probably <laughs> one of the most misunderstood types of feminism I think definitely and that's not to say that it's a good type of feminism because (laughs) it absolutely has its issues too definitely people have no idea what it is yeah no absolutely I mean you hear radical feminists and you're like that sounds sick you know right radical feminists I love radical things I'm radical I'm a feminist that sounds like you know but the radical feminism it's radical in terms of liberal feminism that preceded it right so Mm -hmm. it's you know radical feminism is primarily out of the you know second wave, which was the 1960s, 1970s mm-hmm. uh, political feminist movements, focused a lot on sexual liberation, sort of more a pushing of women, again, primarily petty bourgeois and bourgeois white women into the workforce, that sort of thing. Like mm-hmm. it's often upon the basis of creating a name for themselves without the presence of men entirely. Exactly, exactly. And that's where you get into a lot of the critiques of radical feminism for being trans-exclusionary and for being sex work exclusionary and in particular being very exclusionary of um, marginalized communities within the working class and within racialized groups, that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. Because radical feminists did not learn that missing piece of intersectionality from the liberal feminists. In fact, they perpetuated it through the 1960s and 1970s. Absolutely. With their very bioessentialist views. Absolutely. Yeah. Hugely bioessentialist views because I remember when I was first reading about this radical feminism in our in our class and I was like, okay, well, you know, they're (laughs) radical because they want to get to the root of things, right? That's the meaning of the word radical. radical. Yeah. And they they're not reformist, right? Like they're not, they notice that liberal feminism is reformist. It's trying to fix things within the system, but they were interested in revolutionizing the system a little bit more. Oh, like you could argue a little bit more like the issue with radical feminists is that despite their moniker, like despite this idea of of being radical at grasping things at the roots, Mm -hmm. it's actually, they called for a lot of reform measures. You know, they settled for a lot of, we just want to, we'll be in the workforce. We just really, we want to get people into the workforce. We want to get women into the workforce. That's great. Without acknowledging that there were already working class women who had been in the workplace for years, for centuries. You know, working women was nothing new. It was working petty bourgeois women. And so it was like, this is what's important. Instead of Instead of looking at the whole picture, they were very focused on one part of it. So yes, radicalizing one part of it. But when it yeah. came to when it came to everyone else, the people who really needed that revolutionary strategy, they fell back on reform measures, which okay. is typical. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Because it makes you want to get excited about it because you're like, okay, nice. Maybe they're not reformist, um, <laughs> <laughs> which made me kind of excited about it. And then you go and you start reading and like how one of their big things was creating women's only communities, mm-hmm. and they were like, this is the only way that we can exist without the patriarchy and through this like self-liberation kind of thing and I'm just like well I mean yeah it's cool to escape the patriarchy and all but like this is not sustainable this is and it's very bioessentialist yeah exactly in that way a lot of those radical feminists of that era were perpetuating the patriarchy I mean by Mm. by being exclusive towards marginalized communities like the trans community like the non-binary community and not only that but the erasure of those communities as well was you know was more than problematic it was it's uh, I think a really dark 
part of feminist history that that still continued so late into the into the struggle for for equity among proletariat people in Big particular. Time. You know, it's it's disappointing to look back and think that that's what's been labeled as radical feminism. This yeah. this very biologically essentialist viewpoint. It's exactly, and it's unfortunately still alive and well today. Absolutely, absolutely. But. Yeah, no, it definitely is. Yeah, I know we're both thinking of a particular word. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so there's there's TERFs, so that's how radical feminism has evolved. I would say so, yeah. Yeah, no better. No, <laughs> no, um, yeah. So TERFs, that's trans-exclusionary radical feminists, it's basically just the bane of our <laughs> existence. Yeah. And, you know, it's the yeah. bane of our existence. It's definitely the bane of trans people's oh. existence because yeah. there's these people who are calling themselves feminists, <laughs> but they're trans-exclusionary Yeah, because they operate on this idea that trans women is just another way for men to impinge on women's space and, like, oh, my God. God. Yeah, it's this hyper focus on on anatomy and on the as, essential characteristics of your biology, right? It's this hyper focus on that so much so that I feel certainly that it perpetuates patriarchal ideology mm-hmm. and this patriarchal understanding that you are only what I can physically see and like decipher from what I know of binaries that I've only uh, that I've only accepted and never critiqued, right? So mm-hmm. it's trans exclusionary radical feminists are like very difficult parts of the feminist movement to once identify to work with because you can either struggle with them or you can abandon them and like what I'm what we're finding in UMSAN RSM is that we in a lot of circumstances have to try and struggle with trans exclusionary people Um, and then if we can't then we have to abandon them and consider them as backwards right like Mm -hmm. there's no room in the proletariat feminist movement for trans exclusionary or non-binary erasure there's no room for Absolutely it. Absolutely not. Yeah, so like trying to trying to struggle with those people has been something that we've found, especially with the recent movements for the Action Against Anti-Choice Coalition, urging people who come out to our events to not include any trans-exclusion or non-binary erasure materials. And we've had circumstances where we've had to discipline and we've had to ask people to not put up signs or ask people to not say things in those terms and to respect, you know, mm-hmm. people's pronouns and identities and... It's disappointing that it's still such a prevalent ideology, like the ideology of trans exclusion and sex work exclusion. Exactly. Swerfs and turfs. Yeah, is swerfs like, and turfs. Sw- they're everywhere. Yeah, you know? swerfs being sex worker, exclusionary, radical feminist. Yeah, it's a, yeah. It's a disappointing that it's still so prevalent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know a lot of what you just described might be a new concept to a lot of the people who might be listening. So do you want to just rattle off an everyday example of what it might look like for somebody to be trans exclusionary in their language when they're advocating for pro-choice? Yeah, absolutely. So referring to referring to action against anti-choice coalitions as being like a women's issue, as, as abortion or reproductive mm-hmm. health services being a women's issue is exclusionary because mm-hmm. it is not only women who require these services. There are many people people of many different identities that require those services and so excluding it to one particular one particular group is exclusionary mm-hmm. why not open that conversation up to everyone who needs those resources you know their needs and their opinions and their words are very valuable their voices are very valuable and so coming from a proletarian feminist perspective that's something we definitely try to focus on mm-hmm. and we discourage anyone who would do otherwise absolutely yeah yeah 
Um, for any listeners who might have been following up to this point, Crown and I have spoken extensively of all of the <laughs> uh, the actions of the AAACC. That's the Action Against Anti-Choice Coalition. Elizabeth was one of the hugest uh, people in this, so she's she's not only familiar with what's been going on, she was a major force for the inspiration and mobilization of people on our campus. And off campus, too. Um, Thank you. It's a, it's a group thing, you know, like it's... <laughs> so humble. So oh. humble. <laughs> um, but no, you, you've absolutely worked worked your butt off. So, yeah. So another type of feminism, socialist feminism. Yeah. So I know that as soon as I hear socialist, as soon as we're getting a little <laughs> further to the left, I get a little more excited. But there's problems with socialist feminism, too. There is. There is. <laughs> yeah. Especially the way Anna Gandhi talks about it, right? Because... Mm-hmm. Anna Gandhi is also, it's, I think, worth mentioning, a Marxist-Leninist Maoist from India, uh, the communist efforts in India around the late 90s, early 2000s is, I believe, when this was written. And so, you know, the context is important for understanding the way that they're discussing these things. But socialist feminism was largely attributed to academia, right? Like, this is another concept, particularly Marxist feminism, as it's known, coming out of academics who studied sociology under Marx and then tried to amalgamate that with more liberal or radical ideas of feminism. And while that's interesting, because obviously proletarian feminists enjoy Marx's writings, (laughs) to put it mildly, it's complicated because it, again, lacked a thorough understanding of the working class. And not only that, but an intersectional perspective on the matter of feminism again and you know coming from coming from academia it lacks the representation of the working class the working class gender oppressed persons and so that's another critique that Anna Gandhi had of socialist feminism but ultimately what they did the reason that what their work was important was because they started to look at feminism in conjunction with capitalism and how it's important to tackle them both at the same time. Again, so the beginnings of an intersectional understanding, right? Mm -hmm. But just lacking those other pieces, lacking the understanding of racism, lacking a more proletariat perspective, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's probably, if anyone's not familiar with feminism, that's probably a lot for them to digest. But I guess where we're going with this is like, you know, these are a lot of criticisms of the different types of feminisms, but where do we go from here? And I have excellent news for you if you're not familiar (laughs) with proletariat feminism. (laughs) There is a feminism that exists that is aware of all these things and specifically strives to overcome these barriers and have deliberate action from an educated perspective on how to move forward from these things. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, proletarian feminism, the way that I always like to introduce it, as it were, is to say like it's a theoretical and a practical struggle against patriarchy and the oppressive capitalist state. Nice. Yeah, so it's theoretical in that we we do a lot of readings. A proletarian feminist group should be consistently reading mm-hmm. um, existing and contemporary literature, literature that's not necessarily even directly proletariat feminist, right? That's many different forms of feminism many different forms of anti-capitalist writing, anti-colonial writing, everything, everything under the sun, and then trying to understand it through a proletariat feminist lens. So trying to understand it through the anti-oppression forms that we've outlined uh, Mm -hmm. as part of our ideology. So that's the theoretical side, is that you are constantly educating yourself, constantly in the process of learning as much as you can and critiquing it thoughtfully. Mm -hmm. And the second part is the practical struggle. So that's the you know, boots on the ground, you know, actually (laughs) getting out there, holding up a sign in front of anti-choicers and distributing materials and protecting 
fellow working class gender oppressed persons, right? So working collaboration with other efforts that are trying to do very similar work. And the practical part is often where people sort of get hesitant when it comes to proletarian feminism, because we do admit that there are circumstances where militancy is necessary, where it is necessary to stand in between something like anti-choice rhetoric and the public, which is something that Amsen RSM and the ACC has been doing, is yeah. we've been getting face-to-face in the way of that sort of thing, which in itself is a militant action. So, and that's, so that's proletarian feminism sort of in its nutshell. It's theoretical and it's practical, but it's against the same thing. And both of those things, whether you're sitting in a classroom reading with dozen other proletariat feminists or you're standing out in the cold (laughs) trying to eat a Timbit (laughs) while um, holding a big, you know, pro-choice sign is it's they're both working in tandem to get towards the same goal, which is destruction of the the capitalist state and destruction of patriarchy. Oh my goodness, what an excellent explanation. Oh, (laughs) I tried. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's so important. So in terms of what that looks like in practice, literally when you have your UMSAN, RSM, sorry, we, like I attend. Yeah, you're an UMSAN member. I'm part of UMSAN. Um, Hell yeah. (laughs) When the meetings are held weekly, there's a part of the agenda always dedicated to theory. Always. And that's literally what we're actually talking about today is this Anuradha Gandhi that we keep making reference to. Like, yes, we learned about the different types of feminism in our class, but this is a reading that just that that Amsan just did like what, two weeks ago or yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. we do it every year. Yeah, and we, as soon yeah. as you become acquainted with this material, it's like, oh my god, you can see exactly why this is so important. And yeah. it's like, imagine if everyone who was doing activist work had access to this material. Yeah, how useful would that be? Yeah. If you knew about the past mistakes. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's like it's like here's everything that went wrong. You know, yeah. and what a what an absolute blessing it is to to have Anuradha Gandhi's work and to be able to reflect on it. Like this is this will be my third or fourth year in Amsan now, and and every year I get excited to read Anuradha Gandhi because it's just such a thoughtful criticism of mistakes made prior, and it makes me hopeful because it's like okay, someone cared enough to sit down and go through and not like and to critique all these other forms of feminism and all these other issues and movements that have happened in the past, but not only that, to write it down, to make it public, and then for it to be a priority of UMSAN RSM every year is just, it blows my mind. Every year when we all sit down to talk about it, we're always learning new things when we have new faces and new thoughts in the room. We're Mm -hmm. continually adding onto these things and the conversation grows and it's a beautiful thing. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So I kind of want to talk a little bit more about what the problems with liberal feminism being reformist, like just kind of expand on that and like what proletariat feminism does instead of that. Yeah. Okay. So like reform measures are basically like it's the idea, if you think of it like a house, right? So like the capitalist patriarchy colonial state is a house. And so what reform measures do is they paint the walls, right? They replace some doorknobs. They are running around replacing floorboards that have rotten, that sort of thing. So you see a small issue and you say, okay, well, we're going to fix that particular issue with a Band-Aid. What proletarian feminism calls for is the acknowledgement, first of all, that the foundation of the house is cracked. So that understanding that everything that sits on top of that foundation is now damaged because it exists in something that is inherently broken. So the acknowledgement first of that and then the action toward tearing down the house 
so that you can replace the foundation so you can build something stronger and healthier on top of it. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's like a bleeding wound. You don't throw a Band-Aid on a bleeding wound. You clean it, you stitch it up, and then it heals. It's oh the goodness. same kind of thing, right? With your, with your own tools, with your own exactly. resources that exactly. you've thought about. A particular quote by Audre Lorde comes to mind. Yeah. The master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly right. Like, you can patch up the house. You can replace a floorboard. Like, for example, you can you can get white women the ability to vote. That's rad. You know, <laughs> like, that's great. Um, the house is still <laughs> completely <laughs> trash, right? I mean, like, indigenous people still are being subject to horrific colonial action. Literally today. Literally today, it's right? It's still happening. Yeah, exactly. So, like, what what benefits are you really going to make to a system that is it's the purpose of it the exclusive purpose of it is to exploit you know capitalism is its in its essence is exploitative it can't exist without exploiting someone exactly. colonialism is built on this horrific idea of assimilation and destruction patriarchy on domination like it's how can you tweak those things to make them beneficial to anyone exactly. except for a very, very small privileged group of people. I mean, you have to tear them down and build something more beautiful in its place. Yeah. yeah. And that's exactly the reality of it. Like name one person who hasn't been exploited by their boss in some way. Oh, absolutely. It's, the system is built for that to happen. Talk to any indigenous person about what happens in their daily lives. Oh. They will have stories. Oh, of course. That's Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's not to say you should just walk up to them and be like, hey, tell me about everything in your life because that's emotional labor. Yeah, give me your emotional labor. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah. Don't, don't demand that because emotional labor is labor, which is another of the many fantastic things that proletariat feminist theory expands upon. Definitely. The fact that emotional labor is something that should be compensated. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you should be, like, I think the... A lot of interesting literature that we study through a proletarian feminist lens is literature that's come out of the scholars and academics who have studied domestic work and domestic labor and how that's like uncompensated labor, mm -hmm. which I think is like another really interesting thing to delve into from a proletarian feminist lens because I feel it's, like we could have an entire episode on just oh, that. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Like working acknowledging all different forms of labor, acknowledging emotional labor, especially it's something that gender oppressed persons very, very typically have to take on as additional labor is the emotional perspective of labor. And not only that, but for persons who are able to become pregnant, able to reproduce, reproductive labor, the idea of raising children, of not only raising those children, but having those children is, you know, a largely time-consuming thing and something that you should be, if you're thinking about it in terms of labor and production, something that you should be compensated for because you are producing the labor force, right? And that's a very interesting conversation that comes out of proletarian feminist ideology, and in particular, writers like Sylvia Federici who talks a lot about compensating people who can become pregnant for their reproduction, which is really interesting. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I feel like we could talk about this all day easily. <laughs> that's that's all the time we have for Oof. today. Um, please come back on the show anytime. I would it's love been, to. This is an honor. It's, this is so fun. It's been an honor having you here. Yeah. And there's so many good things we could discuss here. Yeah, we, we just scratched the could. surface. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, uh, for coming around. Catch us on our Instagram, Wake the F Up, UMFM. We air Thursdays, 11 to 11.30. Thank you again, Elizabeth. Thank you. This was great. I will stay strong and hold on. It won't be too long till the storm passes. Then the rain dries, just like the tears in your eyes. Life can give you a surprise. Then 
good And in the hood, the pressure is high I understand the pressure you had Man, you was our dad Lost a child, I can't imagine Left a wife, bills were racking Four daughters, a mother and a brother We still love you and still get blue But I know how you would want us It's hard, it still haunts us I stay strong, not cause of me I stay strong for those who love me I'll never commit suicide, even if I wanna die Till I'm old in the land of ice and snow I know where I will go I will thrive, I will strive Most importantly, I will survive